Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of The Divine Lantern. We're so grateful you've chosen to join us today. With the blessing of His Eminence, Metropolitan Basilios, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese presents a podcast to educate, empower, and enrich. My name's Jonathan, and as part of the Antiochian Christian Orthodox Youth, I'll be your host for this week's episode as we continue our series on the Divine Liturgy. Joining us today as we continue our series of talks is Father George. We'll be discussing the liturgy's fervent supplication and cherubic hymn. We'll then hear a reading from our Orthodox Library, celebrate the second Sunday of the fast as we journey towards Pascha, and answer a question on the faith from one of you, our listeners. Remember, if you'd like to have your question answered, please shoot an email through to us at tdl at antiochian.org.au. Today's one will be about relationships within the church, so stick around to hear a bit more about that. I hope you enjoy the continuation of our series. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Brethren, today I will be talking briefly about the Sherebic hymn as part of the talk series on the Divine Liturgy. To begin, let's remind ourselves of the words of this hymn. We who mystically represent the Sherebim, and who sing the Thrice Holy Hymn to the life-given Trinity, let us now lay aside all earthly cares, that we may receive the King of all, escorted invisibly by the angelic orders, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. The Sherubic hymn is the primary Sherubicon, or songs of the angels, sang at the start of the liturgy of the faithful during every divine liturgy of the year, with the exception of the liturgies of the pre-sanctified gifts and those of Holy Thursday and Holy Saturday. It occurs after the Gospel reading and is interrupted by the Great Entrance. This hymn was certainly in existence before it was formally introduced 
into the liturgy in year 574 by Emperor Justin II and Patriarch John Scholastikos. After the prayer of the catechumens, the celebrant inaudibly says another prayer in which he thanked God that he has been found worthy to stand before the heavenly throne on behalf of the people of God. Then the priest prays that he may always be held worthy to perform this act with a clear conscience, without condemnation and without offense. Again, the ultimate goal of the prayer is God's glory. Therefore, the priest says aloud, Help us, save us, have mercy on us, and keep us, O God, by your grace, wisdom, that guarded always by your might, we may ascribe glory to you, to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and forever, and to the ages of ages. The people of God then rise and say in unison, Amen. While this prayer is taking place, the celebrant unfold the antimension and laid it on the holy table in preparation of receiving the offering. While the cherubic hymn is being sang by the people, the priest in a low voice say the prayer of the cherubic hymn. This prayer is addressed to the Son, the King of glory, who in his love for humanity became man without change or alteration. While the prayer is addressed to Christ, by the end the glory is given not only to the Son, but also to the Eternal Father and to the all-holy, good and love-giving Spirit. This is the only prayer in which the celebrant speaks of himself as a person clothed with the grace of the priesthood. Christ, our High Priest, has entrusted to the priests of the Church the celebration of the bloodless liturgy. Being, however, bound by worldly desires and pleasures, the priest considers himself sinful and unworthy to minister to the King of glory. For to serve Christ is great and awesome, even for the heavenly powers. Consequently, he asks God to look favorably upon him, a sinful and unworthy servant, and to cleanse him from an evil conscience. Then the priest asks God to enable him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to celebrate the mystery of the holy and pure body and blood of Christ. In this prayer, it is declared that Christ, as man, is the one who offers, and as God, is the one who receives the offering. The second person of the Trinity receives and is distributed. After the prayer, the priest and the deacon recite the cherubic hymn again three times while lifting up their arms to boot, which symbolize our openness and yearning toward God followed by sensing of the holy table, the icons, and the people. Present-day rubrics instruct the priest to recite Psalms 51 in a low voice during the sensing, a practice probably started during the Middle Ages. The Psalms, however, fits the penitential tone of the solemn point of the liturgy. No one ought to enter into the celebration of the awe-inspiring Eucharistic mystery without first repenting of his sins. The name of this hymn is providential and symbolical. Cherubs are among the highest-ranking angel who praise the Almighty near his throne. While the cherubic hymn is being sang 
and during the subsequent Eucharistic canon, we Orthodox Christians and the members of the earthly church must be like the sheriffs who praise the Lord and lay aside all earthly cares. The kingdom of God is nigh. The Lord is in our midst during this most sacred divine office, the liturgy. He is ready to descend unto the bread, the wine, and the water, and for the sake of our salvation, and transform them into the body and blood of Christ. It is at that great and awe-inspiring moment that we must forget all our daily cares and troubles and focus our minds and hearts on Christ as intently as we can, lifting ourselves by faith and attention with God's help up to the height of the blessed holy cherubim. The cherubim also stand with us by the throne of God and praise Him at this great and awe-inspiring moment when God comes near to His creation. That is why we shouldn't leave the church from that moment onward unless there is an emergency. According to the rubrics, the celebrant may leave the church prior to the cherubic hymn in the case of an emergency, example, to give communion to a dying Christian, or in the case of enemy's attack. But as soon as the cherubic hymn starts, it is no longer possible for him to leave the church until the end of the liturgy. He must finish the liturgy no matter what. It is important to remember that any movements, kissing icons, kneeling, or lighting candles are frowned upon at that moment. Everyone focuses their utmost attention on the altar while the great entrance is being made. It is also very important to understand that the congregation's mystical representation of the angels is not merely about role-playing, but we truly inhabit the role, just as the prophet Isaiah saw it in Isaiah 6.3. The faithful are granted the privilege of participating in the heavenly liturgy, joining themselves not to the biblical past, but to the eternal present in God's divine choir. This is further emphasized when considering the fact that the cleric processing with the holy gifts is escorted invisibly by the angelic orders, which is not meant to be a conjuring of the poetic imagination, but a true heavenly reality on earth. Thanks, Father. Remember, tune in next week as we continue our series. The Great Entrance will be the subject of discussion then. And now, we'll turn to a series of readings from our Philokalia. Let's dive into the rich wisdom and guidance we've been offered in a collection of texts written by the Holy Neptic Fathers. Through this nourishment, we hope to provide you with the tools to deepen your spiritual practice and build a closer relationship with God. So, take a deep breath, Clear the mind and let's embark on this journey of spiritual growth together with the Philokalic Nourishment. To recall past sins in detail inflicts injury on the man who hopes in God. For when such recollection brings remorse, it deprives him of hope. But if he pitches the sins to himself without remorse, they pollute him again with the old defilement. 
St. Mark the Ascetic. Death, when understood by men, is deathlessness, but when not understood by the foolish, it is death. It is not this death that must be feared, but the loss of the soul which is ignorance of God. This is indeed disaster for the soul. St. Anthony the Great God is the source of every virtue, as the sun is of daylight. St. Mark the Ascetic On March 12, in the Holy Orthodox Church, we commemorate the Venerable Theophanes, the Confessor of Sigriani, and Gregory, the Dialogist, Pope of Rome. On this same day, the second Sunday of the fast, we make remembrance of our Father among the Saints, Gregory Palamas, Archbishop of Thessalonica. The spring of light now leadeth to light, unwaning the light's own truly great and resplendent herald. This Divine Father was born in Asia and was brought up from infancy in the royal place of Constantinople. When he was of age, Gregory left the palace and gave himself to asceticism on Mount Athos. He eventually moved to Thessalonica to seek cure for diseases he contracted because of his asceticism and piety. In 1349, he was elevated to the episcopacy, tending to his people in the apostolic fashion for 13 years. He is glorified as an ascetic, a theologian, a hierarch and a miracle worker, who forsook a prominent secular lifestyle to take up his cross and follow Christ. The Most Holy Theotokos, St. John the Theologian, St. Demetrius, St. Anthony the Great, St. John Chrysostom and angels of God appeared to him at different times. Through his intercessions, O Lord Jesus Christ our God, have mercy upon us. Amen. How should we approach relationships in the Orthodox Church? Relationships come in many forms. An orthodox relationship must be built on the foundation of God at all times for it to be complete. 
All types of relationships in the church are essential when guiding us towards our salvation. But one of the most important is the unity of man and woman coming to understand and know each other, to then join as one in the mystery of holy marriage. In the epistle of St. Paul to the Ephesians, which is read during the marriage service, we hear, Man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. The union in love must be perfect, total, complete, enduring, centered in Christ and his church. That's why human marriage exists, by the will of God on the earth as the created expression of God's love for man and as man's participation in the love of God. According to the spiritual teaching of the Orthodox Church, marriage is made perfect only in Christ and the Church. This doesn't mean that all those who are married in the Church have an ideal marriage, by the sacrament alone, but rather perfection is nurtured through the cooperation of a husband and wife with God's grace. The Orthodox Christian should at all times be an active participant in the relationship as stated in Matthew chapter 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. During the sacrament of marriage celebrated in the church, a passage from St. John's Gospel is read which recounts how Jesus turns water into wine. It serves to remind us that a life in Christ, and by extension God's abundant grace, is available to help couples transcend their marriage to new heights. It is beautifully said by Saint Seraphim, Marriage is a consecrated friendship, a sacred friendship, arranged by God's providence. And the important thing in forming such a marriage is not to be stuck on externals, rather focus on a person's faith, a person's character, because the true life of marriage is just that. A consecrated friendship. For those who are currently single and are seeking a life in marriage, St. John Chrysostom tells us to choose wisely. One way to do this is to permit God to be an active part of the process. God's divine guidance and wisdom will build the foundation up for any relationship, but it requires both God and man. It is easy to get swept up with the worldly view of a loving marriage, which places romanticism at the forefront. But, at its core, true marriage is a life of love through sacrifice and the offering of oneself to the other. As stated by St. Basil the Great, it is natural to marry, but it must be more than natural. It must be a yoke, borne by two people under the church. God's grace is crucial and a must to be at the center of one's relationship. It is central for salvation. This is why when we do decide to approach a relationship, we must think to ourselves, Will this person work with me in attaining communion with God? Am I ready to help and work the other in their Christian life? How can I benefit the other? Am I ready to offer my life to my spouse and God? To conclude, let's consider the words of St. John Chrysostom in his book on marriage and family life. The love of husband and wife is the force that welds society together. Men will take up arms and even sacrifice their lives for the sake of this love. When harmony prevails, the children are raised well, the household is kept in order, and neighbours, friends and relatives praise the result. Great benefits for both families and states are thus produced. And now a reading from our Orthodox Library. We might neglect to honour the Theotokos because we think we can get to Jesus without her, but we most certainly cannot enjoy salvation without the attitude of complete submission and dependence. 
In his letter to the Romans, St. Paul reminds his readers that all men have received a glimpse of the glory of God and the beauty and complexity of the world around us. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Romans 1.20 But how do we turn this general knowledge of the existence of God, which public polls consistently show almost everyone admits to, into genuine, saving faith? We cannot, as Jesus himself told us. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6.44 Do you see why humility is so necessary for salvation? One of the most humble acts we can perform is to sing the words, Most holy Theotokos, save us, and embrace the total reliance on God that these words express. This icon in words also contributes to our appreciation of the icons of the Theotokos that adorn our churches and homes. Sometimes we hear icons described as windows to heaven, a phrase that helps the faithful to understand their unique artistic perspective in a spiritual manner. This description, however, does not apply to all icons. Look at an icon of the Last Supper. Is that a window to heaven? Are Jesus and the disciples constantly posing for that scene in heaven with an out-of-work actor sitting in for Judas because he's not there? The same holds true for any icon representing a feast day or an event. These depict a moment in time, a moment that contributed in a grand way to the unfolding of our salvation. It is the same with an icon of the Theotokos. She holds a baby, but that baby has grown into a man and sits upon the throne at the right hand of God the Father. To some degree, then, an icon of the Theotokos is like a feast day icon, a commemoration of an event. But the event pictured in an icon of Mary holding the baby Jesus did not occur just once. It occurred many times, hundreds of times, thousands of times. Every time she took her child in her arms, she remembered the words of St. Simeon and St. Anna the prophetess in the temple, and she renewed herself to the task of offering her child for the salvation of the world. She remembered the words of the Archangel Gabriel, who came to announce the birth. These were sad memories for a mother, but good news for us. We need her to say yes to God every day, for without that response, we are lost. And so we remind her again and again, just as we shout, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, before an icon of Palm Sunday, or Christ is risen before an icon of the resurrection. In the same way we shout, Most holy Theotokos save us, before an icon of the Virgin. We often remember that Mary said yes when the angel asked her if she would become the mother of the Saviour, but we must remember that she had to raise him from infancy as well. She had to recommit herself to her original agreement with God every day of his life, as a baby, then as a toddler, then as a little boy. And remember another sacrifice she made as well, in that Jesus was her only child. Each day that she said yes to God, 
she faced the prospect of forsaking her only means of support. The half-brothers of our Lord did not understand this and brought Mary to him while he was preaching in order to mockingly remind him of his responsibility to support her. She was not their mother and they had no concern for her. They wanted him to take care of her. Can you see her smile? Can you see her renew her commitment to giving her son for your salvation when our Lord answers, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Luke 8, 21 She knew, and he knew what she had given up. Some of the half-brothers would never know, and some would learn only after the resurrection, that God had come to mankind in the flesh. The icon of the Theotokos expresses the moment of her offering her son for our salvation. He was hers to give, just as all parents decide who can hold, care for, feed and play with their small children. Should we wait until he's a man and call out to him only then, when we don't need her permission at all? Thank you all for tuning in to another instalment of The Divine Lantern. For all the latest news and updates about our Archdiocese, please visit our website at www.antiochian.org.au. Remember, most parishes within the Archdiocese will be holding services throughout the week in the lead up to Pascha. So we hope to see you there. Have a blessed day and we'll catch you next week.